Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week on Run Tell This, we're joined by Farai Chidea, journalist, author, and host of the new public radio show and podcast, Our Body Politic. Today on Run Tell This, the headlines that caught our attention this week, from Cougars to Cardi B, and our deep dive into the Supreme Court nomination hearings and the terrifying possibility of post-election white supremacist violence. Farai, what's up? It has been so it has long, been a long time. since I talked to you. Farai was like, man, one of the first people to put me on a serious journalistic radio show to talk about like something that I had written. And it was like way back in the day. So I'm so super thankful oh, to you thank for you. giving me like... I, it might have been, if it wasn't the first I'm sure it was one news of the and very notes. first times. It was news oh, and it was notes. one of your first, it yeah, was, yeah. And it, w- it was news and notes, and it was one of the, the very, very first times I'd done anything nationally as far as broadcast. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, I, I loved the fact that news and notes was able to put people on who deserve shine. So I'm really glad. Now, that's, thank you. Oh, she said I deserve shine. I'm done. I'm done. We do. We, can, done. we can wrap this up. <laughs> Farai just gave me the blessing, and so we're, we're good. We're good. Oh, See y'all later. Check so- y'all next week. Farai, and I didn't know that Keith had that story because I have the same story. The very first time I ever did a radio interview was with you on News Really? No way. And I was maybe 26, and I just come from a reporting trip in the Middle East, and I was terrified. Even though it was radio, I had all these notes in front of me. I had like memorized everything I was supposed to say. So you really did give a lot of people opportunities. Oh, I'm so glad. No, I mean, it was, I'm, I feel really lucky to have done that. And now to get to, like, my producers are so much younger than I am. So I'm getting introduced to all new guests that I wouldn't know. And I'm like, um, conversely, introducing them to people like, well, not always introducing, but we had Dolores Huerta, who we taped. And she's 90 years old, has had 11 kids, and has been to Burning Man four times. And talks about how much she loves partying at Burning Man. So, Did you say 90? 90. Age ain't nothing but a number. She was like, I wish I could have gone this year. <gasps> I love that. I love right? stories of people who are older and who just complete disregard age. Like I did yep. an interview with a 100-year-old yogi. She literally practices yoga every single day. Her name is Tao Porshan. She showed up to our interview in heels. And I was like, you are my spirit animal. Like I want, and she's like, age means nothing. I look at people in their 60s and they act like they're older than me. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, Well, but this is great. This is a great circle of love. And Wes, it's great to see you. Of course. Lovely to see you too. So let's get into some headlines. Um, Whatever caught our attention this week. So for you're our guest. I would love for you to start. What's the one big thing that caught your attention? I have been really clocking the census count, and after all this back and forth with the Trump administration, now the Supreme Court has weighed in and allowed the administration to shut down the count ahead of schedule. Um, And part of it is this idea that, you know, the count should be completely submitted by December 31st, but no one factored in this thing called a pandemic. So Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who was in the dissent, said it, quote, the harms associated with an inaccurate census are avoidable and intolerable. And where is this going to fall? It's going to fall in communities like the ones I live in, Crown Heights, Brooklyn. 
Um, the last update I got on, on census uh, for Brooklyn, which may be a bit more now, was 54% response rate. This determines school funding. This determines, um, you know, infrastructure. And it's going to be black and brown people, like everything, that really bear the brunt of an inaccurate census count. So is there any recourse on any of this? Like one of the things I think about is, you know, given the pandemic and also all of the things that were going on with the census even before the pandemic, is there a world where, say, a Joe Biden administration could come in in February and go, you know what, do over. We're, we're going we're gonna to try that again. Let's, you know, and, and again, separating any pol partisan politics, the pandemic might be a reason to just do that anyway, right? But I'm just wondering, someone in one of my group chats was like, can they just like restart this or something? You know, and I got me thinking about, clearly there are a lot of problems with the census, or at least a lot of concerns that there are going to be problems and inaccuracies. Could we, once the world gets back to normal, go at it again? I don't think that there's really a mechanism for a do-over. I think that there may be mechanisms for statistical weighting, like saying, if we know that X many people live in this neighborhood, but only X many people filled out the census form, then we're going to do some statistical analyses. But I don't think that there will be a do-over. Yeah, that's a big problem. Um, all right, who wants to go next? With their I'll jump in. Pick. I'll jump in. So I'm in. So I'm in Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania is one of the. Uh, it's one of the swing states that's on the map and it is heavily watched. Uh, in the western half of the state, our lieutenant governor uh, comes from John Fetterman comes from Braddock, which is a suburb just out of outside of Pittsburgh. His wife, Giselle Fetterman, who has a really interesting backstory. She was actually an undocumented immigrant. Who came to the country from Brazil, became got a green card, became naturalized in in Pittsburgh, and married to the lieutenant governor of, of the state. Uh, home over the week to run to the store to buy some kiwi at Aldi, uh, and ran into a woman who began to loudly uh, call her a racial epithet, call her the N word multiple times, followed her out into the parking lot. This was all recorded. Um, that woman has since been banned from going back to the store. I'm not certain if they're gonna if they're gonna uh, be any criminal charges filed. Um, the reason why I thought this was interesting is because I think it takes us through a little bit of the uh, of kind of the backstory as to why um, President Trump kind of get the taste out of my mouth from saying that. <laughs> but some of the, one of the reasons why why the president likes to hold rallies in western pennsylvania this is an odd part of the country uh eastern pennsylvania the people we, we always hear analysts uh watching the election talk about philadelphia and the philadelphia suburbs and which way the philly, philly suburbs are going to swing western pennsylvania is has generally been regarded as a uh, as a democratic stronghold but that's not the end of the story here um western pennsylvania is not all that diverse uh, Allegheny County itself, of which Pittsburgh is the diverse part, part of this part of the country, but the outlying counties in, in Pittsburgh suburbs, it gets very old and very white very quick. And so it gets more conservative, even among some of the, some of the uh, traditional Democratic voters that has all, always had that white working class bent. And there's always been, and if you talk to African-Americans, people here, black folks who grew up here like myself, um, who have known sort of a, the the bitterness of of a different brand of racism, brand of structural racism in, in this country, uh, sort of under, have an understanding as to why President Trump loves to show up here. 
Well, there's always yeah. this perception that like racism is a Southern thing or, but you know, like when you look at these incidences that happen, like the woman in uh, Central Park, what is her name? What was her name? Amy Cooper. Cooper. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was Central Park, right? There was a woman in Brooklyn about a year ago, the little boy walks by her and his backpack brushes um, her butt. And she says, well, he touched my butt and she makes this huge thing. And then the surveillance video shows later that he did not, in fact, intentionally touch her. His backpack just brushed her. And I couldn't help but think, you know, this were a different time and place. That little boy may have lost his life for that accusation. So we see these things happening in places that are supposed to be progressive, like the woman who called the police on the little girl selling water. She was in California. Yeah, barbecue Patty, the woman who called the police on the people trying to have a barbecue in the park, was in California, in the Bay Area. So I mean, this is as widespread as it gets. It's not happening as pockets in the middle of the country. So it's, you know, sadly, at this point, it doesn't surprise me when I see it happening anywhere. I mean, Wes, do you want to do your headline? Yeah, so my, mine's, mine's nice and easy, although it almost got squished up at the last moment, because I don't know if you all have seen this handle out of Anchorage. No. Breaking today. No. For a while, the, um, the, mayor of so the mayor of Anchorage, Alaska, admitted to a pseudo-sex scandal um, where a local TV reporter accused him of being a pedophile. Mm. Um, but it turns out she is possibly unwell, um, but they had previously had some sort of relationship or interaction. And it, it, it's just, it's playing out in this remarkably, you know, by t next, tomorrow morning we'll have even more details. And it's just, seems a little wild and a little crazy. And read each sentence of it and it gets crazier and crazier and crazier before she made these accusations on social media she called him and left him a threatening voicemail saying she was going to kill him and his wife because oh, he wow. was a pedophile. Like it was it was this very dramatic and then the station the tv station um disowned her and was like she's not publishing any of this with us we don't know what she's talking about and so it seems like clearly there's some dynamics going on but i've been a little caught up in that the thing i was going to share was, I don't know if you all saw this video that has had me a little captured for the last 24 hours, but it was this video that went Twitter viral about a cougar following a jogger in Utah. Yes, I saw that. And and I have been, I've been, I, I was very fascinated by this, but then I've been taking in the threads about this man, if he did the right thing, if he should have done it differently, if he brought this out himself, the little subcultures of Twitter arguing with each other. So some of them are like, you can't be mean to the cats. This is this guy's fault. The other people are like, shoot all the cats. And so anyway, <laughs> that, that's been my, um, that, that's been a lot of my last day has been the cougar video. But do you know that she had baby cougars with her? She was a yes. Monocular? Well, that's what that was the thing was that this was like a fake news situation where the original viral video made it look like this cougar just came out of nowhere stalking him. But then when you see the the full cut, he approaches the baby cougars, and then yeah. the mom basically runs him off. And so I'm like, all right, this was that guy's fault. It was totally his fault. As soon as I read that there were young animals involved, like I know nothing about the wilderness or wildlife. I'm from the suburbs. I've lived in the city most of my life. But even I know that the most dangerous thing in the world is a wild animal mother with her young. Like that's when you're going to get mauled. So the fact that this guy was approaching them, like he's lucky he didn't get mauled. And if he would have, I wouldn't have felt sorry for him. That's where I was on that too. <laughs> <laughs> He was asking for it. Well, you make me feel a lot better about my choice because my first choice was going to be this Cardi B um, Instagram. Have you guys seen this? 
Which one? No. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want to, I don't know. It's kind of like, I mean, she posted it herself. So I don't like if these were news that were leaked, it would you know, be kind of a violation of her. Not kind of, it would be definitely a violation. But she posted this. Um, it was on her stories. So my guess is it's probably gone. But, you know, it was a topless image. And the whole conversation now has been about her breasts. And, you know, people have a lot of criticism about the way they look. And it's just like the most insane conversation because they look like like regular women's breasts. I don't know. We talk about getting like sucked into this Twitter spiral. But I was like, no, I'm not going to make that my headline because this group is far too sophisticated for that. But Wes with his Alaskan married man anchor sex nah, game no, just made me feel no, way we better ain't about too that. sophisticated at all to talk. <laughs> we ain't too sophisticated at all to talk about Cardi B news. I'm actually a little bit embarrassed, not because I'm engaged in a conversation, but because I hadn't actually seen it prior to this to be able to participate in in a more intellectually enlightened way. Intellectually enlightened. Uh, so. I think Wes is Googling it. Is See, I'm, I'm Googling it now. <laughs> Cardi B's leaks own ample I got, I got areola research. nude on accident. Mamory meme mayhem ensues. Mamory meme mayhem. So that mayhem, last part, yes. Mamory meme mayhem ensues is actually some very good writing. But I, I'm like, I, I didn't see any of the pictures. Have these people never seen breasts? They just look like regular breasts. Like, what do people think breasts are supposed to look like? Which confirms the fact that whoever is commenting really doesn't have that much experience with women. Because I'm like, this is what they look like. I don't know what you were expecting, but there's nothing abnormal about them. So anyway, that was not my official choice, though. I just wanted to say that it was one of the things I had considered. And had I known Wes was coming with the, the anchor sex scandal, then I probably would have <laughs> chosen. Um, what I did choose is Megan Thee Stallion's op-ed in the New York Times. Yeah. Which I was incredibly that was impressed with. And this was a incredibly well-written piece about protecting black women, where she speaks very candidly about being shot where she talks about the blame that she took on as a result of speaking out on it, but she had been afraid to speak out because of that very reason and that her fears were then founded with the criticism that she received afterwards. And then she goes on to talk about the need to protect black women, which is kind of on the heels of her SNL performance, where she also made it a point to say, we have to do a better job of protecting black women. Um, So I'm just really proud of her. I think she's just doing a phenomenal job of owning a space that she didn't ask to be in. Did y'all peep though, or have y'all peeped how much, how political SNL has been this season? I mean, I guess the comedy has always been fairly political, right? Like they always, they always find a way to pick fun of candidates and have, you know, Maya Rudolph doing, you know, Kamala Harris and, you know, things like that. But just like this week's monologue, last week's uh, last week's performance by Meg Thee Stallion, like SNL has been super seriously political and really given it almost reminds you if you go back and watch some of the old SNL clips from like the 70s, early 80s. And, and that troupe, the, some of the originals who were really political and, and, and said some some impolitic things, some things that you couldn't get away with saying today. They've been walking right up to that line the last couple of weeks. It's going to be interesting to keep watching SNL from now until the election. Yeah, entertainers often step into that space for the simple fact that people are watching. You know, sometimes you need your spinach with a side of ice cream. So if people are watching Megan Thee Stallion because she's a really compelling performer and her music is fantastic and she knows that and she's able to slide in a message that's important to her, you know, that is a really honorable use of the platform. And same thing with comedy. I mean, comedians have always been the truth tellers. 
in our society. And Bill Burr, I was really impressed with what he said. Frankly, I didn't expect a white man to be so um, insightful on everything that's happening. I was I was really it, surprised it was, by the controversy around it. Like I didn't I didn't think. You know, I, I didn't actually find it that edgy that people would be this upset about. Like, you know, like I, I didn't really? I didn't think it was that original. I didn't. I thought it was fine. Right? I didn't. I don't have complaints about it. Right? I thought it was a fine little monologue. I watched the clip. I was like, oh, okay, dope. And then I went on with my life. And then today, it's you know, it's it's about to be Wednesday, and people are still getting threads off about the Bill Burr. Like, and I'm like, God, what? <laughs> like, this wasn't. <laughs> so, so what he said wasn't wasn't really all that edgy. It was it was who he was talking to. I mean, he very specifically mm. said, I'm coming for white women's necks. I'm snatching, snatching white women's wigs in this monologue. And he proceeded to, to do so um, in a way that I think and if you kind of if you watched it, the audience and I don't know what the makeup was of the audience, but you could hear the uncomfortable laughter like this is funny. Right. I was I was sitting home cracking up as I watched it. I thought it was funny, but the audience was kind of like, mm, I don't know where this is going. The minute the minute he said white women. But I did think it was incredibly brave because, you know, when you look at the history, and he's absolutely right, when you read like slave narratives, Mm -hmm. the slave mistresses were often as cruel or more so, particularly to other women and to children. So this is a long history in this country of, you know, white women being very complicit, but they're often left out of that indictment. I was going to bring what you said, Mara, back around to the Supreme Court hearing this this morning. Um, one of the first things that that I that I paid attention to was Nominee uh, answering questions from Lindsey Graham, and one of the, one of the questions was about uh, her view as a as an originalist on the Constitution, and it brought me to exactly what you talked about: is this this thread through American history of white women, sort of white white women benefiting from. Uh, patriarchal system of white supremacist thought and white supremacist policy that really serves to disadvantage them, but dis- but only in so much as it dis- disadvantages everyone else a little bit more than it disadvantages them. So I'm listening to her talk talk about being uh, an original constructionist and give an answer that where where she says, you know, I believe that the Constitution must be read as in must be interpreted as the framers intended at the moment that they wrote it. Right. And I'm going, for you not to recognize the irony, for you not to recognize, how is it that you could sit there as a woman of any race and say, as you're being nominated to the Supreme Court, that the Constitution of the United States was held that women couldn't vote, couldn't own property, did not have full full and equal rights or participation in society whatsoever, that African Americans were not people, right? How could you sit in front of the, in, in front of Congress, in front of the United States Senate as you're being confirmed to be a, to be a justice of the Supreme Court and say that document has to be read only in the way that a bunch of white men read it or a bunch of white men understood it? Back in 1776, how is that possible? Yeah, how's that yeah possible? I even had. If it were to no, be read going. in that way and only in that way, you wouldn't be in the chair that you were in. Yeah, there's um, a couple different things come to mind. Uh, Mona El Tahawe uh, wrote a piece calling um, 
Amy Coney Barrett, the five-star general of the foot soldiers of the patriarchy. Um, wow. And, and the foot soldiers of the patriarchy, meaning the majority of white women, the people who voted for Donald Trump. It's very good and completely no holds barred. And then I went to a lecture by Jill Lepore, the writer for The New Yorker, who wrote these truths, who really explained that white women have been the most successful in American politics by exercising proxy power through white men. And if you start to understand that, you start to understand that it's not a bad strategy. It, just, it doesn't work for black women or Native American women or Latinas or Asian American women, but proxy power has worked in some ways for white women. So that's why you get these inconsistencies, to, to put it kindly, in what people are willing to say and how people are willing to vote. But that reminds me, you know, I was having a conversation, I was on a work trip, and it was like an after hours drinks. And one of the people at the drinks was an executive. And it was a white man. And he wanted to play this like game where you go around and you say, if you could be anybody else in society, who would you be? And so, you know, someone might say, oh, I wish I was a professional athlete or, you know, whatever the case may be. And his answer, I will never forget this. This is a white man in his 60s, one of the most powerful media positions in the world. He said, I would be a 24-year-old white woman. And I said, why? And he said, because that's who has power over me. (laughs) I'm having a home alone moment. Okay. So I never forgot that because I thought, and I don't know, but, but what you're speaking to, I don't know how conscious it is, but we talk about proxy power, that there is a lot of power in that, in who holds power over the most powerful. And in, in a lot of cases, it's, it's the woman. Yeah, but it only goes so far. It's, you you know, you can you can get the power that people allow you to have. I would rather have the power that I want to have, even if I have to fight harder to get it. But it's real. It is real. It is a real strategy that works. Well, I wanted to talk about the the confirmation hearings. Um, So Keith, once again, is like the king of segues. He always like leads us right to the main topic. Um, And you know, there were a couple moments that I think were important for people who are watching it from a race perspective. And one of them really struck me because I didn't know how I felt about it. And anytime I'm kind of intellectually confused and also emotionally confused by something, it really catches my attention. It was the response to the question about George Floyd, um, where, you know, she's asked about her response to George Floyd and what she thought. And she says that she cried with her her daughter, her black teenage daughter. And I had to ask myself then, how much of the black experience does a white mother get, right? Which made me think of Wes. And I I messaged you to make sure it was okay to bring this up because, you know, I'm not trying to like go too personal because your mother is white. So so is there um, a sensitivity that comes, you know, from a white parent raising black children? Um, so a few things. I mean, I don't necessarily think automatically, but I do think there. I, I do think there there can be. And so there are a few things here. I also caught that I didn't watch the entire hearing this morning. I was working on some other stuff, but I watched big chunks of it and was there for that exchange. And you know, and I, and I thought that and obviously George. I spent time covering the George Floyd case and time with his family, and this is a space I spent a lot of time in. So obviously, think a lot about. And and I gotta say that I was initially 
I don't know that I want to say impressed with the answer, but I but I thought that I was I was glad that there was that real moment. I think there were a lot of families with white parents around the country where there was not a moment of having discussion about it, where their kids were kind of left to fend for themselves about X, Y, and Z. And so I do think that sometimes when things are difficult or different from our experience, it can be easy to be like, well, they'll figure that out. And so I appreciated that at the very least, at a very base level, that there was like a parent there to interact with that teenager that way, right? And and, and I thought that just you know, removing everything else from it, that seemed like, I think there are a lot of people who had, they had to have an honest answer about how they grappled the George, with George Floyd's death in front of Congress under oath. It would not be, I spent time with my kids talking about it, <laughs> crying, right? Um, and, and so I appreciated that. You know, look, I do think that there can be, and there books have been written about this, essays have been written about this, right? There there are elements of what happens when you as a parent are raising a child who is going to be perceived by the world as different than you, where their experiences might be different because of that, right? And you, we see a lot of conversations around this in adoption spaces, um, especially, frankly, in like evangelical adoption spaces, where very often you have white families who are adopting uh, children of color from other countries. Um, and, and so you, there's a lot of conversation that exists around this. What I'll say in my experience, and, you know, I, I do think that that might, it, it might be a little different, but I, but I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, my mom raised three black boys and I, and there's something about the, I mean, I, I can only speak to the relationship between mothers and sons. I don't know what it's like between mothers and daughters, right? But there is something about those relationships and, and the closeness and the way they operate and the way that your sons are going to be the best and do all these things and no one better do anything to them. And that I do think that there is and can be a hyper awareness and a thought of how your children are interacting in the world and what that looks like and how it um, and how it shows up. And so would I ever expect that like my mother like necessarily knows or understands all of it? Certainly not. And also there is a sense of like, there is a bird that comes with raising black boys, right? And she doesn't stop being my mother because she's not a black woman, right? She looks at the world and sees all of these things and understands them as well and worries about her sons, right? And I think that that connection remains. You know, one thing that is really interesting as I thought about this, and I've, I've written about this account um, on the record, not my own, um, but I wanted to say that before I share someone else's story, right? But the... I remember doing some reporting a few years back. This would have been in the summer of 2016 after Philando Castile and the Dallas shooting. And Barack Obama had this long meeting at the White House between activists and police organizations. It was the longest standing meeting of his administration. And I remember one of the civil rights leaders um, shared this story. She was a, a civil rights lawyer. She was a civil rights lawyer who's a black woman, but who is married to a biracial black man. And she was talking, uh, you know, she was talking one time to her mother-in-law who was white. And this is in the light, this is in the light of Philando Castile. It's another moment like this. And her husband had been pulled over driving home in their BMW or whatnot. These are two upperly mobile lawyers, you know, like, and, and so he gets home and he remarks, oh, I got pulled over, get X, Y, and Z. And the mother goes, well, why would they do that? It, and and someone remarks, oh, it happens all the time. He gets pulled over every week or every two weeks. And the mother, the white mother, 
had, in her experience, never fully conceptualized her own son's blackness. And so this attorney's telling me, like, she's like, my mother-in-law is like losing sleep at night. She's calling me, you know, is asking if my husband's home from work yet. Is he safe? Money pulled off. <laughs> because here she is as a grown woman with a grown adult son. And it was the first moment of realization that her son might be treated these ways out in the world, right? I think that there is a moment for a lot. I, I would imagine there's a moment for a lot of white parents raising children where there is that moment now that moment can come <laughs> with the toddler in the stroller or it can come when the, when your son's 50 or 60 right but i do think that there can be a moment like that and i wonder you know in a world where this wasn't a confirmation hearing it was actually just like an interview or a conversation you know i was really i would be really interested in hearing more from amy comey barrett about kind of what her philosophy has been on this how she thinks about you know her role as a white woman raising children color how they self-conceptualize themselves right what research does she do how what what's her daughter's hair look like what's you know like it that, like those types of and i say that kind of flippantly but i mean that and you see a whole spectrum very often again especially in adoption cases of how families equip themselves for kind of cultural competency of of incoming children and so it was just really interesting to me but like i said i thought that i, I listened to that answer and I thought, I'm glad that that girl didn't have to go through that alone as a teenager, right? That there are mothers right. who wouldn't have been in there crying with her, who might not have understood it or might not have tried to understand it. or might, And knowing nothing else about their relationship or any the, the way they've been raised, to me, that sounded like a reasonable and a solid answer. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of attention that was paid to another issue um, of race, this case that she wrote an opinion on. Uh, this racial discrimination case, racial discrimination in the workplace, where a gentleman was called the N-word by his supervisor. And she wrote, quote, the N-word is an egregious racial epithet. That said, Smith, the gentleman, can't win simply by proving that the word was uttered. He must also demonstrate that his supervisor's use of the word altered the conditions of his employment and created a hostile or abusive work environment. Basically saying your boss calling you a nigga doesn't make it a hostile work environment. So I want to go back to the to the last question that you that you posed and talk about how I would respond to all of this is to say that it it is a wholly appropriate and wholly fantastic to 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 as a parent be responsive to whatever needs your child has. If your child is crying because of the racial animus and strife that's happening in the country, of course, black, white, or otherwise, you should be there for your child and you should and you should, you know, try to try to comfort your child in, in any circumstance. I understand that, you know, perfectly as a as as a parent myself. What I would wonder though is does that extend to how you acquit yourself on the bench? Does that extend to how it is that you do your job? So as a journalist, as a person who operates in the business world, as a person who has who has covered sports and has also had children playing sports, um, I have always attempted to acquit myself in a manner in which I do my job that I thought was respectful and reflective of the things uh, uh, the, the things that my children would need 
of me, right, in that situation. That that's just sort of how I think about these things, right? So there's the the, the practice of journalism and the ethics of journalism, and, and then we all bring our own personal uh, touch to how we do our jobs. What I would wonder in that instance is about the dissonance between showing up for a black child who you are the parent of and yet making decisions that impact the world that that child is going to live in, the world that that child is going to work in, the world that that child is going to grow up in and, you know, potentially be partnered with someone in. Uh, and, and to create a situation in which that, that would make it more difficult for your own daughter or for anyone else's child to live in a world where they have to then jump over a higher barrier or a higher hurdle to prove that a hostile work environment was created by, calling, by, by the boss calling her a racial epithet. Um, how she handles her business in her house is just that. It's her business. But how she handles her business on, on the bench, I would think, would be reflective of the world that she would want her daughter to live in. And when I see a decision like that, after I hear about her crying over the death of George Floyd with a black daughter, um, it, it makes me shake my head. It makes me, it makes me sad. It makes me, because those two things are linked. Those two things are not disconnected from one another. Um, and, and, I don't personally understand the the distance between the one action in the personal setting and the other action on the bench. I wanted to read something from um, a woman who works for Rooted in Rights, which is um, a disability journalism organization. She's a white woman, and I felt like this was a really insightful post to Twitter. Emily Ladau. Um, L-A-D-A-U, um, to identify as female, to be a career-focused woman, to adopt black children, to give birth to a disabled child, these are circumstances slash choices being waved around as props. None of them indicate ACB is inherently against systems actively harming people of these identities. So she said well, I it, I did think I have to think it creeps in. I have to think that you know, there's judicial philosophy, um, which is going to guide a lot. Because I do believe that, you know, especially with judges and like judges, doctors, you know, there are certain professions where people are committed to the ideals of their profession. And I do believe that. Now, the way they interpret it can vary. But in the case of a judge, I do believe they have certain judicial philosophies and they are committed to that. But they're also human. And so as a mother, I have to think that when these issues come up, you are seeing your child in the plaintiff. You are seeing your child in the aggrieved when they look like your child. I have to hope that. So it, 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 does, it does matter. It does carry weight to me that this is a white woman raising black children. My father raised three black children as a white man. And I always you know think that puts him a cut above other white men because he knows a lot he's been married to a black woman for 50 years so he's not your average white man and i've 
See, I have mixed feelings, though, about whether or not it touches the bench. Because one of my aunts, you know, who, who is white, is so astute about race. She's an amazing woman. And one of the many things she said to me was, I didn't really understand race mm. until I had a black son. And so I get where you're coming from, but if we talk about someone on the bench, does that mean every white person without a black child can't really identify with black defendants or, or black um, victims, you know? So I have very mixed feelings about kind of taking that to the yeah. judicial branch. Well, and, and, I, and I agree. I mean, I don't think we can, uh, you can't make an assumption necessarily, because in the same way that there are many black men and women sitting on benches across the uh, across the United States of America, issuing down very punitive uh, decisions, there are black police chiefs and black prosecutors who have been part of these systems for decades, who are very much involved in what many consider the criminalization of black men in our society and, and various other things, right? And so, put, simply putting black, even putting black faces in those spaces, wouldn't necessarily resolve some of this. Um, and so in some ways, it's it's kind of an unfair or weird burden to place on, like, insert white person who now has a proximity to a black person, and that clearly they must get it when, look, a fair number of black people don't get it either. That said, I think that um, e- even even the perspective that might come from having a black child or raising a black child, having a black person in your family, I think is not it's not something that's static. So, for example... Uh, how might that perspective change as a mother has a black daughter going to college? How might that cause her to think of different things than she did when these were just the kids who were playing with their toys? When she has a black son who's getting his license or is or in the workplace, right? That it's not necessary, especially when you're talking about someone for whom these might not have been experiences, perspectives they had themselves. It might take each new interaction to go, oh, wait, what would it be like if my daughter was called this in a workplace? Well, when your daughter's four, you might not be considering that perspective at all in, in any context, right? And what's also true is by the time you're being uh, appointed to the Supreme Court, part of that is because you have developed a body of work of what your judicial ideology is. You're, you're like that, That's not to say that uh, people don't uh, issue votes that some might find surprising or come down on sides that are different. But also, she's not freelancing case by case, right? This is someone who is going to be drawing on a body of experience that creates guardrails in how she sees the law. Um, and that's well established. It's how she gets appointed. The one thing I will say is that I don't think that you can know how any justice will rule. I mean, I don't think that people had any expectations about Clarence Thomas, for example, um, that were anything close to the way that he has acted let alone some of the subsequent, um, you know, uh, conservatives that have become somewhat less uh, ideological than expected. So we don't, I don't, I think that she will be the next Supreme Court justice, but I don't think we absolutely know who she will be as a justice. I don't know if I believe that in, in this instance. I think we're in a new moment. I think we're in a new moment politically, and I think we're in a new moment in the 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 entirety of this presidency has been about destroying the norms and the guardrails of the the institutions in the country to the benefit of the president personally and to the and secondarily to the benefit of the conservative ideologues 
that's that's what the presidency has been. But about. I'm talking about that's, her. Right, right. I understand that you're talking about her. But the point the point that I'm making is, I'm not sure it's a safe assumption to make anymore that someone appointed to the bench. I I think. I think idealistically we want to believe, and again, I don't know whether or not this nominee is going to, whether or not Amy Comey Barrett is, is, is going to turn into what Bill Barr has become, except on the Supreme Court. I'm not saying that she will. I'm saying I can't, I don't live in a world where I can close my eyes and ears to what's happened in the last four years um, because this president uh, and those around him, those close to him, have made a point of eviscerating anything approaching normalcy in our government and done so with the express purpose of enabling themselves either personally or their ideological movement to control politics and control the judiciary in this country for at least a generation to come. You know, Mara said that they, you know, these are folks who get in this profession to do justice. And I believe that they believe that about themselves, right? I think, but what their perception of what the right or just thing to do is might be different than what, what other people's are or what our perception is, you know? And so I am willing to believe more so than other parts of our government that these folks do see themselves less as partisan actors and partisan fit. I believe that in many cases they believe themselves when they say, well, no, I don't, I couldn't tell you what I think on Roe versus Wade until it came before, like that they take that level, that they take that seriously in that way. And that's a big part of their worldview of how they operate. But I don't necessarily, but, but we also know what we know about how in previous instances they have interpreted the law, right? That these people don't stop being who they are as they move on. Um, and so I, I think it is going to be, like I said, I do think it's interesting. I think that the conversation about whether or not <laughs> they pack the court or stack the court in, in Mara's uh, parlay is right. Like, it, you know, like I, I don't, I don't I'm really interested in that conversation. I think that that's part of a bigger and broader conversation. I think I mentioned this on the podcast the other day. I thought that this was where uh, one of the answers I was most disappointed in Senator Harris with was uh, where there is a real conversation to be had. And in fact, if I remember correctly, David Brooks wrote a big piece for The Atlantic about this idea over the weekend, right? That you have a lot of people in the United States of America and a whole generation of young people who do not believe in the legitimacy of our systems. That it's that it's that they've lived under presidents who have won fewer votes than the other person. They are worried about calamities like climate change, and, they, and no matter what they do, no matter who they call, no matter how many marches they have, they can't get anyone to, to do any of it. It feels like the rules of the game are rigged against them. It, none of it makes sense. They don't have jobs, but Jeff Bezos is getting richer. And like, and I do think that in the context of our politics. There is a big, there is a moment, and we could either have this moment now or we're gonna have this moment in the future, where there is a growing consensus, certainly among young Americans, even across political lines, that there are some real illegitimacies built into the system. Uh, be that around voting rights in places like Puerto Rico or DC, be that around the Electoral College, be that around the way the Supreme Court's working or the filibuster. And so there is a question of, do Democrats take steps, no matter what those steps are, if that's statehood, that's the Supreme Court, take steps to 
further legitimize our democracy, make it so more people feel as if the rules of the game are fair. Or, uh, and by the way, those changes also would have political benefit to them, right? And, and so there, there's a question of whether or not the Democratic Party does that. I have been kind of bracing myself emotionally for Trump to be reelected because I don't want to be caught off guard um, the way I was in 2016, where I felt like somebody hit me over the head with a frying pan. Like there's a there's a school of thought right now. This is a conversation that we had in my in my own house that that you know if he what if he what if he loses? What if he loses? We just we Which just he? had Trump uh, or Biden? The, 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 the Trump. Okay. We just had we just had a group of right wing domestic terrorists brought brought in arrested captured for a plot to kidnap the governor of an American state. I think about that. And these are people who are ideologically aligned with Trumpism, right? And they're not lone wolves. They're not, they're, they're not, um, they're, they're not the only group that's out there behaving like this. The militia movement has been, um, which I think is, think is largely a domestic terrorism movement. But that movement has been building and building and building for quite some time and has been then legitimized and spoken to, not in dog whistle, but in people whistle, right? In, in a way, in a language that, that all of us can hear, not just them, by the sitting president of the United States, who also has been doing his best to tell anyone and everyone who will listen that, hey, armed group of people with violent tendencies, if I don't win this election, just know that it's that it was illegitimate. Doesn't matter how it happened. Just if, if I lose the electoral college, if I lose the popular vote, if I lose in a couple of states that I told you I was going to win, whatever happens, it's illegitimate. I think the more... I think the more worrisome thing actually might be in terms of people's physical safety might might not be if what if he wins again? It might because if we if what what if he wins again then gets to policy, Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. And can we just deal with the chaos of it all as a country for another four more years? I think the bigger potential threat to people's actual physical being is what's gonna happen if this guy loses? If we were having this conversation four years ago, it would have sounded like you were being tremendously paranoid. But today it seems like a perfectly reasonable idea to have a plan B. And I spent last week Googling requirements to drive into Canada. Does a child need a passport to get into Canada? Turns out they don't. They need proof of U.S. citizenship. Um, and this was something I was very concerned about because my son doesn't have a passport, American or otherwise, because he's too little. He's never been out of the country. So the fact that we are having these conversations and we are truly worried about our personal safety and the safety of our children and our families after the results of an election is mind boggling. I never thought as an American that would be something I would be worried about ever. And yet here we are. I have to say that I, you know, I've been interviewing white nationalists and supremacists on and off for 25 years. So I'm not shocked by this. Um, I also have a friend who um, is the 
child of, um, you know, sort of xenophobic Trump voters who is a political progressive who hit me to what are now called the militias um, like well over a decade ago. So I'm not only not shocked by this, I wrote a blog post right after the 2016 election called The Call to Whiteness, which was basically about the rise of white nationalism in government and what I called inadequate establishment whiteness response, because whiteness is a construct, just like blackness is a construct. And who determines what the construct is, is always going to be determined by a number of different factions. So establishment whiteness, which says that whiteness is part of an American meritocracy, basically stood back while white supremacists and nationalists started claiming real estate. And I'm not shocked by this. Ammo sales are up 3x over this time last year. Um, black people are starting to arm themselves. So you hear on like Tremaine Lee's podcast, Into America, the story of black people starting to arm themselves in response to the threats of white violence, not just threats, but actual white violence. And so I'm preparing to hole up. I've got myself a 20 pound bag of rice and a three kilo bag of sugar and a bunch of canned food. But I don't think that where I'm going to be, I'm going to need it. I think that if, to be honest, I think the places where I would be most afraid is if I were in the minority in a xenophobic place far from a larger government. And I have been to these places as a reporter. The small towns that are, and I'm just gonna be really real here, majority white, white run, far from a big city with um, the ability to intervene if things go terribly wrong, what people used to call sundown cities, you know? Um, I worry about the people in sundown cities. Well, let's pray for the best on all fronts. Um, and I don't mean that facetiously. I am praying for our country, truly. Um, Farai, tell me about the podcast. Do you have a new podcast? Yeah, it's called Our Body Politic, and it's about black women and all women of color and politics. And so we've had on people like um, Representative Deb Holland talking about how, as someone who is Laguna Pueblo, who whose uh, people go back in New Mexico for thousands of years, what it's like to stand up for indigenous rights and for the rights of veterans. She comes from a, a veteran's family. Um, we have had um, Alfre Woodard talking about the census. I just talked about the census at the top of this and why it's important for us to be counted. Um, you know, all sorts of people, you know, Black Lives Matter activists and artists and people who are dating during COVID. It's basically just a space where we center the lives of Black women and other women of color. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.